So Acts 21, verse 8. Hopefully you all found it okay. Why don't we uh, stand and read together as a church? On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Let's pray. Lord, we have two verses, and they are short and sweet, but they're impactful and they're loaded with observations. And as you know, as, you, as you've watched us grow in our church, we love to take your scriptures and dig our teeth into them and rip them apart. And uh, we're here to do that today. We look for, forward to our time together, time of encouragement, time of uh, uh, renewal. And uh, yeah, we just want to uh, have you go before us in your spirit's name. Amen. So as you've noticed from this morning's reading, uh, we're going to take a break from the book of 2 Peter. I decided to do something a little different today due to the fact that the majority of the women are gone to the ladies' retreat. And I realize there's many left behind, but I thought with with the ladies being primarily gone in numbers, uh, I would want to target the men today. Not that today's message is not applicable to women. There There are points today that will be very much applicable to your lives. And if you are uh, raising sons, or you or you're, uh, have uh, fathers of your own, or you're, you're uh, married to someone, you would want to encourage them with these words as well. But I want to target the men, because Proverbs rightly says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So I'm here to sharpen you today, but not through my words, or through you patterning yourself after me, but by the man we just read about this morning, and that's Philip. He's going to be your, your sharpener. And there's four characteristics in Philip's life that we as men could do well to model. And we should pattern ourselves after. So I pray that our time together today is one of encouragement, one of renewal, but even one of correction, if the Spirit is speaking to you in one of these categories. The first characteristic I want you to notice about Philip was that he was a man of hospitality. Look at verse 8. On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. It's interesting here that Luke, who's writing this passage, writing this letter, the book of Acts, talks about we in the, in a, as a plural. Luke was there that day, stayed at Philip's house, but there was more than just Luke there. The we actually is referenced in Acts chapter 20, and there we see seven other men accompanying Luke uh, as they're spreading the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world. And I just say this simply to demonstrate that when Philip invited these men into the house, and it says we there, this was no small feat. This was no small entourage of people just knocking on the door. This was seven uh, weary and traveled men. And they were a large group to take on. And yet he had no problem inviting these men into his home, providing them with food and lodging uh, as they came on their travels. And of course he was looking to further support these men in ministry because they were making their travels elsewhere, they were passing through And so he opened his house in an act of generosity and to take care of them provisionally. He took care of their needs. See, what Philip was doing was modeling a virtue that the New Testament speaks about 
that he wants us as men to do. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it speaks about the necessity of being uh, a believer who is hospitable. In John, sorry, in 3 John, verse 5, it talks about being a, a person who is hospitable and providing for other people's needs. In 1 Timothy 3, it's a requirement for eldership. If you want to be an elder at Genesis House, one of the qualities you will have to demonstrate here is that you're known for being hospitable. It was a requirement for women to be put on the widow's list. So if you were hungry and you needed provision for, in the New Testament church, if you came up to the table and they said, analyze your pattern of hospitality, and if you weren't known for that person, you would not receive support from the church. Clearly then, Philip, opening up his home to seven guys that day, was walking in the path that was pleasing to the Lord. And one who had no problem showing generosity towards others by taking care of their immediate needs. So the first question I have for us guys today is, how are we doing in this area? Are we inviting other Christian brothers and sisters over to our homes on a regular basis? Are we known for being generous with our resources to others? If we're married, I mean, often this falls on the woman or the wife to be in sort of charge of that role. But are we taking initiative in our homes in doing this? And when people come over, do we just sort of sit on the couch and watch everything happen? Or do we kind of like get involved and try to help everyone make, uh, feel welcome in our house? In 1 Peter 4.9, one of the key characteristics of hospitality, he says there, you may remember this from our last sermon or our series before, he says we're to do it without complaint. So when we're hospitable, we're not to be grumbling, belly aching about it, about the time and effort put in, or even the, the expense involved. So again, hospitality is a key virtue that Philip models and that we should pattern ourselves and seek to strive after. The second thing I want you to notice about Philip, which is not initially seen in the text, but when we do the, when we surmise from, the, from using the whole scripture, we're going to see this characteristic present, is that the Lord had done a tremendous work in his life in the area of forgiveness. In the area of forgiveness. And I should actually just show you this uh, outline. Actually, here's a hospitable quality, and here's the forgiveness quality. You see, notice in verse 8 that Luke tells us that Philip was one of the seven. He was one of the seven. This is the first reference, uh, sorry, the first reference to these seven was found in Acts 6. You'll remember the story. There's a widow's crisis, a food ration crisis in the church, in the early church. There's Hellenistic widows, and there's Palestinian widows. And basically, there's native Hebrews and like a sort of like foreigner, like a sort of foreigner Hebrews, all in Jerusalem. And they're or, sorry, foreign Jews, not Hebrews. Anyway, get the point. They're sort of like native to Jerusalem and not native to Jerusalem. But they're in the church and there's a, a crisis because the, the Palestinian women are being, or sorry, the um, non-Palestinian women are being overlooked. The non-Hebraic um, Jews are being overlooked. And so what happens is uh, discrimination is occurring. And so they need to take care of this issue in the church. And so one of these men that is chosen to do this is Philip. He's one of the seven. But another man named Stephen is chosen to serve there as well. Do you remember what happened to Stephen? He was killed. He was stoned to death. Do you remember who his ex executioner was? Or who oversaw it? The Apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul. 
Guess who showed up at his house that day in the wheat? The Apostle Paul. 20 years has gone by, approximately, since the execution of his best friend. And the murderer that killed him is in his house and he's providing food and lodging for this guy. On equal terms with everybody else. Can you imagine that church? Someone that you love being killed by someone else that you know? And then both of you or that murderer comes to know the Lord and you partner in ministry together and next thing you know he's sleeping at your home and you're providing dinner at the table and you're praying together and you're thanking God together and you're, you're just treating this person with complete equality. That's the evidence of the transforming power of Christ in Philip's life. That's absolutely remarkable. But man, is there a lesson in that for us. Anyone hurt you in the past that you're still harboring unforgiveness towards? Anyone that's been on your mind but you put it off? Like they don't deserve it? May we learn from Philip. Because I doubt, as painful as your experiences are, that they would have been as deep and tragic as what Philip experienced with losing Stephen that day. We could learn a lot from Philip in the area of forgiveness. The third thing I want you to notice about Philip is Luke's description of him being an evangelist. In verse 8, On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Of all the words that can define someone in Christianity, or could define a person, Luke wants to give him one title. This man is known as an evangelist. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's what he's known for. But what this does is it reveals to us the nature of Philip's heart. He has a huge concern for the lost. A huge concern for the lost. We see early evidence of this in Acts uh, chapter 8. 20 years earlier, remember after the persecution hits the church that Paul started, Philip has to flee Jerusalem and he runs to Samaria. What does he do in Samaria? He preaches the gospel. What happens? A revival breaks out. After this, God then sends him to an Ethiopian eunuch on the road as he was heading on the road down to Africa, basically his home, his home place of Ethiopia. What does Philip do? He obeys God's com uh, commands to go down and see this guy. He witnesses to him, and he, this man comes to salvation. And what's interesting is, I'm going to suggest that that's how the gospel first spread to Africa. He's the first conversion we know of in Scripture. He's in Jerusalem, he's heading down, and that's how the gospel got spread. And look at where Africa is today. <laughs> but Philip was an evangelist even back then. After that, after Samaria, and after, after, after the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, we see him proclaiming the word in a place called Azotos, as well as other cities, before he finally ends up in Caesarea. So, from all we know, for 20 years, this guy has been faithful in evangelism. And he's still known as being an evangelist in, uh, in 20 years later, because that's what uh, Luke wants us to know him by. He wasn't a formal evangelist, he is a current evangelist. He never lost in those two decades his passion for sharing Jesus Christ with others. 
And there is a huge challenge to us men. Do we have a heart for the lost like Philip? Are we known for patternistically sharing the gospel with other people? May Philip be our role model for that as well. The fourth and final characteristic of Philip that I would suggest our immediate passage, as well as the other parts of Scripture would support, is that he did a great job being a godly father. He did a great job being a godly father. Where would I get this from? Verse 9. Now the man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. First thing you want to notice here is that Philip clearly embraced God's uh, design to be fruitful and multiply. He had four lovely girls. Um, but what I think is important here to define his godly characteristics is how the women are described. Notice they're called virgins and they're called prophetesses. Now some of you in your Bible will have the word unmarried there instead of virgin. The reason is that the Greek word for virgin is often used to define a woman of marrying age. So when it says that, she's, that the girls are virgins, you're not to think of someone who's like five years old or before the reproductive years. This is a, these are women of marrying age. So there are women who are able to biologically engage in like sexual activity. But here's the thing, and here's the key. Even though they had the ability to do so, they clearly chose God's way of life as their option. They had maintained their virginity waiting for marriage. Now I want to suggest when you've got four girls that all fall in that pattern and they're all of marrying age, that Philip and his wife would have had a clear role and clear influence in guiding them in truth in these matters. Secondly, they're called the prophetesses. Like, you know how Philip was defined as an evangelist? These girls are defined as prophetesses. Well, we know from the sermon a couple weeks ago that a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. And remember the mark of a true prophet. Their word never fails to come true. That's how you know someone's a true prophet. They never fail to come true. 100% accuracy with their predictions that God gives them. You couldn't be a prophetess unless you had a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that's something that's, that we, God calls you into that ministry or it's a spiritual gift. You don't get that unless you're a Christian person. These girls then clearly had a faith of their own apart from their parents. They clearly had a faith of their own apart from their parents. They're marrying age now. And they clearly decided, you know what, I'm going to break away from mom and dad's faith and I'm going to commit myself to Jesus Christ and his way and God's way apart from mom and dad. And the fact that they were embracing this role and they were all known for it shows that, again, Philip and his wife must have had a tremendous role in raising these girls up. So what did he do? How did he do this? How did he raise them? Well, the text doesn't tell us, but I can tell you from other parts of Scripture that there are clues in how to be a godly father. And I, and I can tell you that he, there have been things that he had to have done to set the table for his children to spiritually develop and to grow into these kind of women. And I want to spend the rest of our sermon now talking about this. Now, I did a seven-part series on parenting. Seven parts. So about six hours of teaching on this, about three, four years ago. I'm going to summarize those seven sermons, six hours and 20 minutes. All right? So I'm going to give you the Coles Notes version of what it takes to be a godly father in the area of raising your children. 
The first thing is this. We are, need to be men who are self-sacrificial and offer self-giving love. We need to be self-sacrificial and offer self-giving love. How do you define this? This is a love that makes personal sacrifices so that your, cho- your children will thrive and benefit with no expectation of return on your part. You make personal sacrifices purely for the best interest of your children so that they will thrive with no expectation of return on your part. This definition comes from God's love for us. You see, God through the entire scripture uses family language to describe himself. He's a father. Jesus teaches how to pray. Our father, not our judge, our father who out in heaven. Right? When, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, what do we tell him? He says, tell, tell Pharaoh to let my, first, my firstborn son go. Family language to describe himself. We see him giving self-sacrificial, self-giving love to Adam and Eve. He didn't have to give him the paradise that he did when he created the world, but he did. He didn't have to give Israel the best land in the, in the world with Canaan, but he did. He didn't have to promise them all these things in the wilderness in terms of protection and care, but he did. Jesus himself died on the cross, made a huge personal sacrifice so that we could thrive and benefit with no expectation of return. While we were enemies, Christ died. Not while you were cleaned up your act and you were trying hard for God, he died for you. While you were an enemy to God, he died for you. We see this self-sacrifice all over the scripture, old and new. We are to model ourselves after our Heavenly Father. So what does this look like? How do we do this? This means moving from a functional parent to an intentional parent. You move from a functional dad to an intentional dad. What's the difference? A functional dad does this. He provides the basic necessities of life. He provides food. He provides shelter, he provides clothing, takes him to sporting events and things like that. Drives him to school, whatever. Takes him to music lesson, that's a functional dad. An intentional dad consistently plays and invests in the kid's life on their terms, in their interests. He seeks to accommodate their likes and their desires. And this really has to do with preferences. It has to do with preferences. So let me provide you examples of what this might look like. You are a father and you are mechanically inclined, but your child seems to love art. You make huge sacrifices on on their terms to take an interest in art. That's what you do. You show them YouTube videos of art. You take them to art projects. You uh, take them to art galleries. You uh, introduce them to different forms of art, and you go that route. <laughs> right on, Roger. I'm glad you're listening. Okay, good. You are you're a sport freak, and your kids love piano. You ditch your sports and you highly invest in music for your child's behalf. And you get the picture. 
Let me provide you examples of what it doesn't look like. You don't set the table for them in their interests and then abandon them and walk away or you, or you don't participate in them. So my kid loves art and loves coloring. So here's a bunch of paper, here's a pencil and then you go sit off in another room and work on your computer. That's not investing in your child. That's setting the table and walking away. That's not, uh, um, you know, uh, dropping them off at the park and then sitting on the bench on your iPhone and watching them play. That's not investing in children. Let me tell you a true story. This, like, I, like, a guy about uh, my age, about three years ago, doesn't come to our church, but he, I minister to him off and on. He goes to another church. He'd been having troubles with his 11-year-old son. And he said to me, uh, can we go for coffee? I said, sure. So we're talking about life, and he goes, yeah, I'm just struggling with my kid. And I go, what's wrong? And he goes, well, I try to like, invest and like, play and play and stuff, and he doesn't want to have any interest in me. And when I talk to him at home about doing things, he always like, balks at me and he fights me on everything I, I ask him to do, and it's just like a constant battle. And I said, well, I said, I said, can I speak into your life? He said, sure. I said, well, what I'd recommend you do is that you find out his interests and his likes and play in his terms. So he's 11 year old by this time. He says, I said, what kind of things does he like to do? And he says, well, I, uh, he likes skateboarding and going to that skateboard park by the rec center. I said, well, do that. He goes, well, I do that. I do that, Andrew. I said, do you get up on your, did you, do you join him on the concrete or do you sit on the picnic bench? He goes, I sit on the picnic bench. And I said, do you see the problem? His tears started to well up in his eyes. He was trying to like hold back. He was caught. He knew it. He knew it. I said, you go back to that park and jump on a bike and bike around. And he said, you know what he said to me? I've tried that in the past. It doesn't work. I said, why not? He says, because my kid basically gets mad at me. And I said, let me guess. You're trying to tell him what to do. I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you just bike around? Don't say anything. And for, after five or six minutes, he'll invite you into his world. And he'll say, watch this, Dad. Why don't you try this? Let him correct you and how you play. And that was it. Here's what it also doesn't look like. You don't invite the child into your likes and interests and force them down their throat and pitch them like they're, they're, they're their interests. I'll give you an example. And I'll just, I'll choose, uh, I'll just choose lacrosse because my boys are into that and, and Dave's got them into that and so I'm really grateful for it. But let's say I'm a huge lacrosse player and I introduce my kids to lacrosse and they take an initial liking to it but I can tell it's not their first passion but I keep taking them outside and say let's play, let's play, let's play, let's play and they go okay dad and they come out and then, again it's a bit of a fight but they'll eventually come out they're not going to see me as, a or as an intentional father because what I'm doing is I'm playing they know that I love that thing first so the, 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 the message they get is dad, dad likes playing this with me but he actually, this is his favorite thing to do, and I'm just joining him in it, and so therefore, um, he doesn't, it's not really about me, it's really more about him. It's easy, we can pitch our ideas to our kids, like it's okay to introduce them to things you like, but you'll clearly know if it's their interest or, or not their interest. I worry for the fathers in Okotoks because they, they are nuts about sports, absolutely crazy about them. Half the kids in there are living out their parents' dreams. They're not the kids' dreams. This is their parents' dreams. But it looks like they're being a great parent because they're being sacrificial, but they're not. The kids' interests aren't there. Can I tell you something? For me personally, the violin 
and working out cannot be the way to my boy's heart. Cannot. Here's why. They watch me play every single day and they've watched me exercise like my, basically my whole life. If I invite them downstairs to work out, if I invite them to try the fiddle, they'll, they'll try it and they'll enjoy it for five minutes, but they will not know that I love them unconditionally and I'm doing it for their best interest because they know daddy loves that. If I introduce them to lacrosse, <laughs> if I introduce them to um, like a, the cajon or like to uh, uh, some kind of like work project like, uh, like mechanics, they know that that is for their interest because daddy never plays those things or is interested in those things until they ask me to come into their world. Now they know because daddy never does that. Right now Jacob's the puzzle guy. He loves puzzles. He's never seen his dad do a puzzle in his life. And I never will. Even on camping trips. Well, unless Denise does, I'm not a sacrificial love towards her. But, uh, but you'll, you'll know if I'm ever doing a puzzle, I do not want to be doing that. But I've been doing a lot of puzzles lately because that's my boy's world. And what's cool for me is like, even though I love hockey, and that was my main sport as a kid, I don't play hockey anymore. But Jacob loves hockey every day. Let's play hockey, Daddy. When I play, he knows I can play because he sees that I got skill sets, but he has no idea that I played like, like as a young kid to the, degree, to the degree I did. So hockey's awesome for me because it's a way into his life and he knows I'm doing it for him. But if I was a major hockey player and I introduced him to that and then we kept playing, he wouldn't feel the same investment in his life. Now I, I know I went on a long tangent about that, but this is super important, dads. What children learn when we do this is simply this. This is not dad's normal behavior, so he must love me. And it has to be constant. You can't do it once a week, guys. You don't make any inroads really once a week or once every two weeks. This is a constant pattern of life. You need to be known for this. Why does it matter? If you don't give to your children in a tangible way, they won't trust you when, you're, when they're older, they won't respect you when, they, when they're older, and they won't obey you as they get older. You will set them up to be sneaky in their teenage years. They'll, they'll, they'll hide things from you, they won't communicate with you, they won't come to you, they won't be forthright, and you go, why aren't you coming to me? And you have no idea that the, one of the major reasons is because you never showed them interest when they were young. So the child's model becomes this. Life has never been about me. It's always been about you. So why should I trust you now that you've given me commands and instruction? The commands and instruction you've given me now can't be for my best interest because it wasn't for my best interest when you were younger. And then you get fighting with your kids. It's like yelling, raising your voice, angry. You know, you should and you should. So you become a dictator in their life. And that's what they say, the teenage rebellion. That's what they say, you know. A lot of the teenage rebellion is a result of the parents' fault. A result of their fault. There was no investment. So the kid never learned that, that life was all, that you cared about them unconditionally. So, where are we at, men? Are we intentional? Are we functional? Are your activities right now, your kids' interests or yours? Can you even name right now on the spot what your kids love? If you have multiple children, can you go, this person loves this, this person loves this, and can you, can you say that you invest in those areas on a consistent basis? Are you carving out time to play on their terms? 
I know you work, and God commands you to. If you don't work, you don't eat. But if you can't come to a place where work keeps you so busy that your desire is to check out and not check in when you get home. Number two. So self-sacrificial love. Number two, discipline. The key verse for us is this. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will move it far from him. To see some key points you don't want to miss in this verse. First, the nature of a child. Notice that the child is defined here by God as being foolish by nature. Yes, they're sweet. Yes, they're adorable. Yes, they're cute. But they're not morally neutral and wise. Again, so there's some key points I don't want you to miss regarding this verse. The nature of a child is foolish. Right? They're not wise. God imparts us as men with the responsibility of removing that foolishness from them. Right? It's up to the parent. The foolishness is bound up. The rod of discipline will move it far from him. The expectation is the parent is doing that. The father is doing that. But here's a couple of things I don't want you to miss from this verse. If you don't remove foolishness from a child, you actually become the foolish one and the child becomes wise. Do you see why? If God says, child is foolish, you're wise. And you don't remove foolishness, and, and because they say, I want to do life my way, and you let them, they become the wise one, and you become the foolish one in God's eyes. It's a complete reversal. The pendulum swings the other way. Second thing happens is that you are actually accused of hating your kids. Hating your kids if you don't. He who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Talk about countercultural. Why is our culture in trouble with the kids? Because they won't do anything regarding their foolishness. They are loving them by letting them be the way they are. And we're turning out like hopeless uh, situation after hopeless situation in terms of work ethic and care for authority and respect and work, all these types of things. Morality issues, all going, all going sideways because of this. God says, if you actually love your kid, you'll diligently discipline them. And the key is diligent. Diligent isn't like once in a while. Diligent is like diligent. Like patternistically, every day, every single day, your kid needs correction. Every day. When they're, when they're especially, when, I shouldn't say that, when they're 16, maybe not. But when they're like 5 and 6 and 7, they need constant, constant correction. How do we do it? Well, it says the rod. The rod. There's two, optionable, top, two options available to parents then. There's physical pain and there's environmental pain. Those are the two options. Your physical pain at a young age is the best option because they can't communicate and they can't see the big picture of life and so it's, it's just good to set a precedence really young. But as they get older, you will probably start to imply more environmental things like the loss of activities, the loss of privileges, and especially with relationships and things like that become more important. But the key is this, men. You have to make their life uncomfortable and miserable. If you want to remove foolishness, you have to make life uncomfortable and miserable. Like this microphone. I'm going to do this. There we go.
And the key with your discipline too is it's not to embarrass your children or to humiliate them. That's not what I mean by uncomfortable. It's to remove foolishness, which is to set them up for success in life as adults. And remember, all discipline is to be for their best interests. It's for their best interests so that they are able to have a better work ethic, that they'll be better in relationships with uh, peers and with an employer or an employee and, and uh, with real, uh, marriage and so, so certain things in the future. And the, as you get older, you'll maintain that foolishness if it's not removed from you. It'll just be masked differently. So here's what it looks like. A two-year-old that throws a tantrum in the aisle of Sobeys, you know what a, you know what a 40-year-old that tantrum looks like? Silent treatment from your spouse. That's a tantrum. But it's a mature tantrum. Right? Because I'm, I'm not getting angry. You can't see it. That's a mature tantrum. That's the same thing as a tantrum. Right? Because it breaks communication. It's all about you. It's not, it's not helping any relationship whatsoever. Again, we, we don't... We don't mature out of foolishness just because we get older. They always say, age is inevitable, maturity is not. Okay? So all discipline is to remove foolishness, it's for their best interests. So if there's anything in your kids' lives you don't like, man, you have to get rid of it now. Now. But here's the key. Ted Tripp says this really well. The purpose for your authority in the lives of your children is not to hold them under your power. You're not a dictator in their lives. It's to empower them to be self-controlled people living freely under the authority of God. You're not to go on a power trip. You're to empower them. The discipline is to be done so that they can be, become godly children. The byproduct of a godly father. One more point to finish off with in this area. Your attitude when you're doing so. You are to do so with a particular attitude. Ephesians 6, 4 and Colossians 3.21 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And fathers, do not exasperate your children so they will not lose heart. Exasperate and provoke are interchangeable. They mean the same thing. The word is to stir up. To stir up. Dad, don't stir up your kids to the point of frustration and anger. Don't stir up your kids so that they lose heart and you deflate them. You can do this by shaming them, by using derogatory words like, you're an idiot. Boy, why would you do something like that? That's so stupid. You're such a goof, that type of stuff. Or you always, or you never language. You never get that right. You always do this. Really, Dad? Do I always, 100% of the time, really always do that? Nothing in marriage gets you more mad, doesn't it? And your spouse says, you always are like that. Like, really? Because two days ago, I, was, I didn't do that. But the, that's the always and never. It's 100% locked in and you can't get out of that behavior. You don't like it in marriage. Your kids may not speak out against you because they're, they're, they're young. But they inside are building up walls already. Showing favoritism amongst children. Setting unreasonable goals. And making unreasonable demands. I've seen that. Where they, you know, like, uh, this is just an example. It's not a true one, but I can't think of anything else. But, like, you give a kid a pickle jar and say, open it. I mean, the kid can't. And then you go, what, can't you get that stupid jar open? We're waiting for supper. Like, well, I can't, Dad. Like, you know, I'm three or whatever, right? Like, but we do it in crazy ways. Like, with, like, like maybe time management, the speed of putting on clothes, uh, getting out the door. 
you know, all sorts of things. Using unnecessary physical force to ensure compliance, the grabbing of the arm and yanking, the pulling of the ear, the grabbing by the arms and doing this, and you listen to me, that type of stuff. Disciplining and unstrained anger. We may be going God's way in punishment because we're disciplinarians, so we think we're doing a good job, but that's not the way we're to do it in a hot-headed state. Nowhere in the Bible permits a dad to discipline children under a temper that's high and in an aggressive, angry state. Nowhere. So what can we expect if we go God's way? Proverbs 29:17. Correct your son and he will give you comfort and he will give delight to your soul. If you do this the way God designs it, your children will give you comfort and delight. You won't be scared to take your children to the bank and stand in line. You won't be scared to take your children to someone else's house because it might be, quote-unquote, too much work if we go out. You won't be scared to go out for a restaurant. When they're older, you won't be afraid to have your children be employed by someone else because you know that they're going to work their butts off for that employer. And the list goes on. The third pillar to raising, parents, raising children, reaffirmation of love. So self-sacrificial love, um, discipline, godly discipline, reaffirmation of love, or what I call hope for reconciliation. Make sure the child knows that there's a place for them to start over relationally with you after discipline's occurred. There has to be a refresh button hit. Why? God does this with us. Multiple Old Testament and New Testament examples of this. Once God disciplines us, if we confess our sins, we repent, we move on. The slate is wiped clean and we start over with God afresh. It's important to pattern ourselves after Him. Because many of us never grew up with this being modeled to us. It was discipline, then left to figure it out on your own. No reconciliation, no reaffirmation of love, and so you just grew more distance from your parents. You go back to your child, you give them words of affirmation, you give them lots of physical touch in a gentle, hugging, loving, kissing way, and you will restore the relationship. If you don't do that, you'll leave your children feeling worthless, hopeless, and angry. And finally, the last phase, you model it to your children. Philip did this well, church. In, in Acts chapter 6, why was he chosen for service? I'll quote the words right from the NASB. They were looking for men who, quote, were of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom. There were, probably, there were hundreds of men available. Seven were chosen. Philip was above the, the other Christians in being of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom. He was already before children at a high level, or if his children were around, he was a young, a young dad. Philip possessed these qualities long before he had children. Most important then, that in this, is that this evaluation came from other people. He didn't say, I'm of good reputation. <laughs> I'm full of wisdom. The church recognized him as that. The church saw these qualities in him. Twenty years later, we see these, these qualities continuing by the way he's 
functioning in his home with the guests showing up. He's one of hospitality. He's one of who's hospitable. He's uh, still an evangelist. He's uh, fulfilling the New Testament requirements of opening up his home and being generous to others. He's got his two daughters, or four daughters that are living godly lives. He's clearly modeled this to his children. And it spilled out, spilled out into their lives. And he was a huge, huge influence to them. It's so important for us as dads to be consistent in our own walks. Our feet, our hands, and our mouths moving in the same direction. I got a powerful illustration. I'll finish with this. Powerful illustration given to me about uh, 10 years ago. Person sitting in a chair right across from me says, I want you to tell me what you believe when I say this. And he went like this. I love you. I love you. He goes, what do you believe? I said, not your words. He goes, why not? He says, well, because everything in your body says the opposite. Isn't it interesting that the body language spoke more to me than the words did? You see what he's saying? Your behavior is what dictates what your, where your love is. We have to model our commitments to Jesus Christ in the home if we want the children to follow suit. Everything from our prayer lives to our, our, own, our own devotions at home to the way we treat others, to the way we work, to our attendance at church on Sundays. So whether we choose activities over Bible studies and all sorts of things. And again, I'm not saying you can't pick and choose things. I'm not saying that. But again, it's, it's what's... Because I will sometimes miss something of a church related to go to a special occasion too. But I'm talking patterns here. Patterns. What are you known for? What are the children going to learn from you in terms of commitments to Jesus Christ? Right? Let's go to church. Let's go read our Bibles. Let's pray together. I mean, that's exactly what's going on. We have to be committed if we want our children to be committed. I'm going to suggest to you that Philip knew exactly what he was doing as a dad. Now, I have no lessons written because this sermon speaks for itself. So I'm looking forward to our dialogue now. And I want to know what God's challenging you with today.